Armstrong and Getty Show. We'll have a little bonus mailbag in a couple of minutes. People with some thought-provoking points of view, uh, criticism, uh, humor, etc. And we need to get to a little uh, midterm talk eventually. But right now, please welcome the Armstrong and Getty Show, Taylor Telford of the Washington Post, who's reporting on the big Google walkout that I guess swept the globe, more or less. Taylor, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. Thanks a million for sparing us a little bit of your time. So uh, the folks at Google, a little stirred up about uh, the company's sexual harassment history. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Basically, uh, this is coming a week after a pretty big bombshell report from the New York Times that showed there were pretty widespread allegations of sexual misconduct and sexual harassment, and specifically against some really high-ranking executives in the company, some of whom had received some pretty big payouts after internal investigations that uh, found allegations against them to be credible. So the big payouts, uh, the biggest one was to one of the, the heavyweight tech guys who helped found the company, right? Uh, that's correct. It was Andy Rubin, uh, and he was the creator of a lot of the Android technology. And uh, the Times reported that he had received a $90 million payout when he left in 2014. Wow. So the employee's not happy with the way their company has failed to live up to their stated ethos, I guess. And, and I understand they had demands, too. What are they asking for? Uh, essentially, they're asking for uh, much more transparency in terms of the reporting process of these uh, sexual assault and misconduct allegations. Uh, and they are also uh, just aiming to improve the, the quality all around of uh, equity, especially gender equity. Uh, what do they mean by that? Uh, what in particular? Well, uh, as you can imagine, and as we've all heard over the past couple of years, Silicon Valley has a reputation for being quite a bit of a boys' club, uh, and Google is not insulated from that. And so uh, a lot of the women feel that they have been passed up for opportunities by uh, several of their male counterparts and mistreated when it comes to situations like these with sexual misconduct, uh, misconduct where they're taken less seriously. So uh, in this case, gender equality would look like considering them on equal footing with the men. So I was surprised to read that Google actually has something like 90,000 employees, and and they had a wave of walkouts worldwide? That's correct. Uh, They were all scheduled at 11.10 across the globe, and uh, it ranged from their California offices to Tokyo to their tiny office in Singapore, Dublin and London and Berlin all participated. It was very, very widespread. I think the organizers said that they had participation from about 60% of the Google offices around the world. Hmm. And has Google said they're going to do anything or comply or, or uh, you know? Uh, they've said that they supported uh, the employees who chose to participate in the walkouts and that they were bringing in very valid points. Uh, and they haven't made any explicit promises yet, which I think is what people are looking to see. This is not something that is probably just going to go away, especially when you consider that Google really hinges on being able to attract talent that's going to propel the company forward, both in their products and their projects. And so if they can't prove their commitment to a safe work environment, uh, I think it could be a really big problem for them down the road. Well, and, and their culture has a lot to do with this. Taylor Telford of the Washington Post is online because, you know, not only is Google and a lot of tech companies famously fairly like flat, they're not super hierarchical, uh, but they also have cultivated this uh, this culture of progressive activism. And so, uh, to me, I'm at least a little amused that I wonder how often they're going to have walkouts now as people feel so empowered 
or uh, self-righteous that they just don't work when they're agitated. I wonder if this will, you know, we'll see this increase. Uh, I think it's definitely a possibility. And it is worth noting that this isn't the first uh, instance in the last few months alone uh, of employees kind of taking to the public uh, some internal issues to push back. You know, I think it was back in uh, June that uh, they raised some concerns about the contract with the Pentagon. Right. Uh, and then I think in August, uh, a bunch of employees also uh, signed an internal memo that was published by the New York Times, urging them to uh, drop the search engine that the company was helping develop for China, right. uh, or at the very least, uh, consider a new ethical process to vet projects like that that have a possible moral fallout. Taylor Telford of the Washington Post. Taylor, well done. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so that's funny. I, I really appreciate her throwing those two examples out at the end, one of which uh, the canceling contracts with the Pentagon I find pathetic, indefensible, the sort of muling, whining, snowflakey, America-hating ex- uh, elitism that, that just emanates from Silicon Valley and tech centers. I just can't stand it. On the other hand... The employees standing up and saying, wait a minute, why are we consorting with the oppressive Chinese communists and designing a search engine for them that helps keep their their people, uh, you know, if not enslaved, well, some of them are literally enslaved, um, if not enslaved, at least, you know, uh, dominated and oppressed by the government. So eh, a little uh, little yin, a little yang there for me, Joe Getty, your humble host. All right. What next? Oh, you know, what we need to do. In a couple of minutes, we need to hit you with a couple of clips of our latest uh, long-form podcast in which we talk to a heavyweight journalist about the things going on around the world and and journalism in general, and and it's pretty good, and we'll uh, we'll hit that for you in a couple of minutes. People are loving those long-form podcasts, and I am one of them. I know. We got to do more. Got to do more. Um, So I got this note from uh, John, frequent critic. Um, It's not both sides openly calling for violence. It's like you guys don't get things have changed. Both sides are not calling for violence. Name a right winger calling for violence. Um, well, I'll just finish the note, then I'll respond. Uh, then note if you can find most Republicans condemning it. The left does not do this. You used to love your show, but you guys are pushing the both sides BS. It's as if you still have no idea why Trump won. As much as I loved your show and keep giving chances, it's harder and harder to listen to you guys. Um, so listen, you're always mad, John. You're always angry. All of your emails are angry, for one thing. Remember, calm the hell down. Secondly, you make a couple of really good points. Republicans are universally condemning violence. Universally. Whereas the sloth of the left to condemn the violence of, say, Antifa, or to take responsibility, if that's appropriate, for the shooting of the, the baseball practice is discouraging, and it's pathetic. There are no Republicans encouraging violence. There are, however, crazy freaking nut jobs who identify as, you know, right or pro-Trump or whatever, who have committed acts of violence lately. And we're in the business of convincing people here. We're trying to change minds. Mostly we're trying to entertain people as they drive to their through their godforsaken highways to their godforsaken jobs. But, um, you know, if we can change some minds, great. And I'm ready to concede there's violence and anger on both sides. You know, and if if that bothers you, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, But we appreciate your patience. You keep giving the show a a chance. 
And, and you know what? I'd rather have you write and, and, and trade ideas than not write, so fire away. Here's uh, Travis. Probably our last Halloween reset, but I found this interesting. Uh, got a knock at the door at 930. How late is too late for trick-or-treating? Figured it was high school kids. I guess I wasn't shocked to find two young women pushing a stroller with a two-year-old in it. Not one of those three people were in costume. I don't even think anyone said trick-or-treat. I was too shocked to decline them candy and didn't want them to didn't want to tell them to beat it and fear some type of retaliation, egging a vehicle or whatever. The trick. Um, I suppose it would be racist to mention their ethnicity, so I'll keep that out. Hopefully CPS will rehome that child to keep it from repeating the cycle. Well, I don't know about that. Wow. You know, that pisses you off because it violates the social contract. Everybody knows what the rules are, and, and when you follow the rules, you show, okay, I care enough about you as a human being. We'll all act like normal people so we can live together because we've all got to live together. That's what the social compact is. And people who do that are just, well, they either don't understand it or they don't care, and you want to tell them to F off and they'll get no candy, huh? And then finally this. Jack mentioned that nutritionists have said that you're better off letting your kids gorge on the candy Halloween night and eat till they're sick (laughs) than letting them have one, two, three pieces of candy every day for the next 18 weeks because that will change their metabolism and the way their body works. One gorge, your, your body, your brain will think, what the hell just happened? But then it'll go back to its its regular way of doing things. Um, so anyway, that's the setup. Got this note from uh, first initial R. Uh, so he resets it. So last night after we got home, the kids counted their candy and surprisingly had not started eating any yet. They were waiting for me to check their candy. Something the kids had gotten used to after years of mom and dad saying, wait for mom to check your candy to make sure it's safe. I remember the podcast from earlier in the week said to the kids, ages 6, 9, and 11, parents so you can picture this they can eat as much as they want tonight but if you make yourself sick you're still going to school tomorrow they literally just stared at me they couldn't believe i had said they could gorge on candy they didn't know how to take it really mom i heard my six-year-old ask her older sister what did mom say is this a trick right (laughs) they really didn't know what to do with that (laughs) they ate a few pieces of candy and that was that They've gotten used to going through their candy, picking five for the night and turning their bags in. I thought the reaction was funny, LOL. Yeah, that is pretty damn funny. Five for the night is quite a bit. <laughs> like, all right, listen, Mom's clearly blown a gasket. We're just going to do what we always do. We'll have a small handful. Yeah. <laughs> right. Clearly things are off the rails here. I suggest we just status quo. I'll tell you, though, you raise your kids any way you want, and it varies. you got to be a good coach and coach each kid the way they need to be coached. But raising my kids, we're a household of very few rules enforced with 100% consistency, but a lot of, I and Judy would tell the kids, this is the way I see it, candy's bad for your teeth, it's bad for your stomach, it fills you up with stuff that's not nutritional, I think it's a terrible idea to eat too much candy, but it's your call, and walk away, do that a lot, and you end up with kids who, well, you know, function pretty well. My dad used to check my candy, and he always found the Hershey bars to be a little suspicious. So he'd you know, take them away. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I think this looks a little funny. Here, I better take this one. Yeah, nice. Uh, so uh, a couple of uh, snippets from our interview with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Matthew Rosenberg on our podcast coming up in a moment or two on the Armstrong and Getty Show. 
Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the, of nation. the nation. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. Do the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you. So we have to stop demonizing people and realize the biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right up to the right. And we have to start doing something about them. There is no travel ban on them. There is no ban on, you know, they have the Muslim ban. There is no white guy ban. So what do we do about that? Don Lemon continues to amaze. Of course, you know, he's doing an a night show on a network nobody watches. Just the net or the uh, the the Beltway echoes what they see on cable because it's all about them. So eh, you bore me, Don Lemon. So uh, real journalists like Matthew Rosenberg go all over the world and cover it and bring us interesting news stories. Uh, we did a long form podcast with him. It's posted uh, wherever podcasts are given away for free because we're stupid, including our website. Um, but this is uh, Matthew Rosenberg. Of the New York Times, uh, I don't see the clip list. Where is that? Do I have that somewhere? What the hell with it. Whatever clip number one is, play it. Was Karzai a crook from the beginning, or did he just become a realist, or what went on there? No, I mean, he. I, I'm not even clear if he personally was a crook ever. People around him definitely were, though. What Karzai was was somebody who needed to stay in power. So when he came to power, it, a whole network of kind of warlords and kind of big men and others came to power with him, his entire support network. A lot of those people were supported initially by us, by the CIA and others. And, you know, early on in the Karzai presidency, that money that, that we were using to pay off different warlords and various actors was then starting to be routed through Karzai. And then it just be, quickly became a situation where if you wanted to get any business done in the country, you know, anything you do, you had to go through the government. You had to go through somebody in power. You needed those connections. And I think that's like the classic mark of a kleptocracy is, you know, look, you know, we always had a deal in the U.S. Like you do your time in government, public service or as an elected official. And, um, and after you get out, you want to cash in. That's up to you. But in a kleptocracy is you are in power and you use your office to either enrich yourself or your friends and family. And for anybody to get any business done, they need your blessing because you control what kind of years of kind of getting the permits you need or whatever, you know. And that was what Afghanistan quickly became where I remember a guy, a DEA guy who was leading this big this big task force to go after Taliban finances. You know, they start their thing in like 2009 when the kind of the surge was starting the war was kind of becoming our focus again. So they fire up this, this big task force and the idea they're going to go after like Taliban, opium smuggling and other ways the Taliban make money. So these guys, they start, they start listening and phone calls over the country and it's, they quickly realize, like, uh-oh, <laughs> like, everybody's in business together. It's not just the Taliban. It's the government. It's people in the Hawalas, which are these kind of informal money transfer networks that made up most of the financial network. It's, it's the 10% of the kind of financial system that works in the banks in Afghanistan, um, that everybody's interlinked. It's all kind of a giant criminal enterprise, and here we are in the middle of it kind of financing the whole thing. Um, you know, we built that. So whatever cars that became, we do bear some responsibility for that. Wow, really interesting. Uh, the more economic power you give a government or more power of the economy, the more you get that, obviously. 
Uh, Matthew spent 15 years as a foreign correspondent, Asia, Africa, the Middle East. And Jack asked him a question about some of the uh, more lawless regions he'd spent time in. Every regular person on planet Earth has always wanted the same thing for the most part. You want to you want to raise your kids in a in a safe place and and that's pretty much it. But where of all the places you've been was the closest thing to like the 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 pure Hobbesian nightmare of life is violent, brutish, short, that whole thing where there just was no law and order. Oh, that had to have been like parts of eastern Congo, parts of uh of Sudan you know, parts of Somalia where, you know, there either in Somalia you had no effective central government, there just wasn't one. And then in eastern Congo and parts of Sudan, there just was, the government had no authority over these places or was so distant that it could exercise no authority. And that if your neighbor or the neighboring village wanted to come up and kill everyone in your village and they were stronger, there was no real way to stop them. Um, you know, Well, that's some caveman sort of stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Africa is filled with incredibly weak states, uh, countries that that can barely control their own borders, um, that are terribly corrupt, that, you know, like I said in the beginning of this, like like I said, you know, these were countries that never got a chance to build themselves. Their borders were drawn by colonial powers. Some of them make absolutely no sense. Why they exist is is simply because of the diktats of, of... of European bureaucrats in the 19th century. And as a result, you know, they're, 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 you know, hobbled from the beginning and probably not get any better anytime soon. And we have one more clip we want to play for you. Um, you know, having discussed that situation in Africa, what can Americans learn about the fragility of civilization? Uh, and I cited the, uh, well, I'm not sure it's in the question, but the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. What does an American make of the fragility of civilization and the way people who look and sound and worship virtually the same like the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda suddenly begin, well, not suddenly, but begin killing each other by the hundreds of thousands? What, what lesson do we take as humanity from that? So leadership counts, you know, but if, if the messages you hear are frequent enough and loud enough to tell you that this other person is there. Hutu or they're Muslim or they're Jewish or whatever they are, Tutsi, not Hutu, are, are somehow bad and need to go, that will become something that, that you will, people will begin to act on. You know, and I think you see that here in the U.S. when you've got fringe elements moving to the mainstream and saying things about their rivals that put them far beyond the pale of political rivals, that these people are enemies, that they're going to destroy our country, that they want to get elected to destroy your life. That's the kind of thing that tends to get people fired up. You know, and then you get the combination of of the idea that you may one day one day prosecute your political enemies or that if you get to power, you can get rich. You know, that's the kind of recipe you get where you start getting real election violence because the stakes get very high very quickly. Matt Rosenberg of The New York Times, our latest podcast, Armstrong and com. Marshall, what are your headlines? Well, we got a California congressman now calling for U.S. troops to build the border wall. New numbers in the battle against opioid abuse, not good. And it looks like there's no home for Megan. Marshall's News next, Armstrong and Getty Show. Trick-or-treating as President Trump says a woman threw the candy at him and said she wanted to slap him. Wow. (laughs) Come on, Michigan. You're better than that. (laughs) Adults. Be better. Yeah. Be better at adulting. 
Marshall Phillips has our news. Marshall? Well, we got U.S. troops taking their places now at the southern border. The soldiers from Fort Riley, Kansas, arriving now in Texas. They're part of the first wave of troops. President Trump is sending to back up Border Patrol agents at the southern border in anticipation of that caravan of Central American migrants. President Troop telling reporters, We've already dispatched for the border the United States military, and they will do the job. They're setting up right now, and they're preparing. We hope nothing happens. And he's warning migrants not to start throwing rocks as troops gather along the border when they get there. We're not going to put up with that. They want to throw rocks at our military. Our military fights back. We're going to consider, and I tell them, consider it a rifle. When they throw rocks like they did at the Mexico military and police, I say, consider it a rifle. As usual, I agree with the president in some aspects, and I also think he's writing checks with his mouth that the administration can't cash. But the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, released a report yesterday claiming that people from at least 20 countries make up the two caravan groups, not just citizens of Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador. It also states that more than 270 people in the caravans are either known gang members or have criminal backgrounds and convictions, not just accusations. Right. DNC didn't cite its sources and said it couldn't because the information is law enforcement and intelligence sensitive. They can't reveal where they got that info. Uh, it says, quote, we continue to be concerned about individuals along the caravan route. In fact, over 270 individuals along the route have criminal histories, including known gang memberships. Then they list a whole bunch of horrendous crimes that nobody wants more of. We also continue to see individuals from over 20 countries in this flow from countries such as Somalia, India, Haiti, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh. There's a large segment of this population that we know nothing about. We must be prepared to defend our border and enforce our laws to protect the citizens of the country. Um, some of that may be overstated, but, you know, it's, it's the political season. But I'll tell you this. Here's the part that troubles me. The part rocks will be treated right. like rifles. Deal. Right. <clears throat> Mexican officials have previously said known criminals were a part of the caravan. Um, let's see. This is the Mexican interior minister. So I know a lot of you who who are anti-Trumpists, right. swing left, whatever. You're hearing the stuff about the criminals in the countries and saying, oh, come on. I don't believe that's true. This is the uh, Mexican interior minister. I have videos from Guatemala that show men dressed in identical clothing, sporting the same haircuts, handing out money to women to persuade them to move to the front of the caravan. We know for a fact that some members of the caravan threatened Mexican Migration Institute personnel, and we have images showing many of them preparing Molotov cocktails. Now, the DHS put the half the group as single adults. A senior Border Patrol official in San Diego told the Washington Examiner only 20 to 30 percent of the first caravan were children families. Citing the Guatemalan intelligence minister, DHS said the caravan is employing tactics to push women and children to the front to act as human shields as the caravan pushes against its military forces. So here's the nightmare scenario. Obviously, you're probably way ahead of me. They send the gang members and the rock chuckers up front, mostly to the front, surrounded by women and children, Mm -hmm. then heave those rocks and tear backward and leave leave the innocents up front. So, Mr. President, seriously, we can't open fire on those people. Now, we can stop them from coming in, but we're not going to fire on them, are we? Really? 
Meanwhile, you got a San Diego area congressman who wants the military to build President Trump's border wall. Congressman Duncan Hunter announcing his support for Trump's plan to send thousands of troops to the U.S.-Mexico border. Right now, we have we have an army of migrants bearing down on, on the U.S. from multiple third world countries. Hunter, speaking to reporters, had an American flag behind him. It's not a campaign ploy or stunt. Hunter refusing to talk about the charges he and his wife are facing over his campaign funds. Most of the polls right now have him leading his Democratic opponent, Amar Kampanijar. Ah, that's right. Duncan Hunter accused of misspending campaign funds, then chucked his wife under the bus. Yes. And said she was to blame. Admirable. He is ahead of the polls. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration says that opioid overdose deaths hit their highest level ever recorded in the U.S. last year. Wow, we managed to beat the previous record. Yikes. DEA report obtained by the Associated Press shows that the opioid overdoses continue to be the highest drug threat in the nation. Preliminary figures show more than 72,000 people died in 2017 from opioid-related overdoses across the U.S. How many? 72,000. Good God. I just saw the traffic fatality statistics. and It's dangerous driving, but it's not nearly as dangerous as, as you know, goblin opioids, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Boy, the pill overdoses are dwarfing traffic deaths. That's astonishing. And the pharmaceutical companies and the fake doctors and the prescription mills just churning them out. All these deaths, you know? Yep. And listen, I'm a, uh, you know, I support law enforcement. Um, and I don't want your street criminals, your thugs, your your, your scumbag types. I'm not, I'm not saying go soft on them by any means, but you've got crimes being committed that killed 72,000 Americans last year. Yep. It might be a priority. Eh, A sane society might make that a real priority. One last note. It turns out Megyn Kelly will not uh, be back at Fox News. Go with as many last notes as you want. I'm tired. (laughs) Go till 10 if you can. The new Fox CEO, uh, Lachlan Murdoch, put an end to the rumors yesterday that Kelly might be returning to the network after NBC canceled her show. Murdoch called himself a big fan of Megyn's. Noting that he didn't want her to leave Fox when she did, but he quickly added that he's happy with the current lineup on Fox and won't be making any changes at this time. Megan! Which might be sincere or might just be trying to lower her asking price. NBC News pulled the plug on Kelly's morning uh, talk show last week after she made those allegedly controversial comments about wearing blackface for Halloween. That's a look at your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. Ah, the world is going to drive me crazy. Wearing makeup to make yourself look darker is not, quote-unquote, wearing blackface. Blackface is a specific thing, but nobody cares. So never mind. Michigan lady threatening to slap a, a boy for addressing as President Trump. More anchor baby talk. A careful, learned, scholarly explanation of why the president can change the anchor baby policy. We'll see if you buy it. Stay with us. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. Just the basic facts. 
Armstrong and Getty Show. Hey, how you doing? Jack's sick. He'll be back on Monday. We told him to stay home and get some rest. So we've been enjoying uh, snippets here and there of uh, Christian Amanpour, who was an odd choice for this, but sitting down to chat with John Stewart and Dave Chappelle. Here's another bit of it. Most of the political discussion is so binary, and I'm way more interesting than that. It's just the dude. It's so like, you're way more interesting than yeah, that. Yeah, most people are. If most you, if, people are. If you talk to them, I hear people say, you know, families are not speaking to one another because of politics. That, that sounds insane to me. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a ton of people that I love and respect that I completely disagree with. What? Huh? That's wrong! You must hate those who disagree with you! Hate them! Hate them! Is uh, Dave Chappelle a cigarette guy or a pot guy? Both. Okay. A cigarette's for a long time. I don't know if he's cut back on that or not. Okay. He's got the pot. unmistakable yeah. gravel of uh, the man who enjoys sucking smoke into his lungs. I've seen him live a couple times almost every... Yeah, every time he's lit a cigarette on stage. Ah, okay. All right. He's a smoker. Joking smokers, don't you think the Joker laughs at you? Ee-hee-hee. Oh, ho, ho, ah, ha, ha. That's the Beatles. Take that to the bank. So, uh, can Trump end birthright citizenship? He was chatting with the good folks at Axios the other day. I'm sure you follow this. He says we're going to end the anchor baby thing. I was always told you need a constitutional amendment. Guess what? You don't. You can definitely do it with an act of Congress. But now they're saying I can do it with an executive order. As usual, who they are is utterly unclear, and whether this was planned is not clear either, and who knows. But I'm into this stuff. I'm crazy into this stuff. Never mind you know, the fact that I happen to agree with the president policy-wise on this one. I just think it's a really interesting question. And this, I'm, I'm reading a, a piece by Chuck DeVore, who's, I think he lives in Texas now. He used to be a California legislator, uh, if, if I'm thinking of the right guy. But anyway, um, and, and he cites in this article, well, he's asking, can limiting birthright citizenship even be done short of amending the Constitution? Bill Crystal, editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard, conservative uh, uh, magazine, hates Trump, panned the president's idea in a tweet. Quote, Wong Kim Ark upholding birth... That's a Supreme Court case. Upholding birthright citizenship seems to have been correctly decided. It's not crazy to ask Congress to test this by legislation, but claiming a constitutionally-based policy that's existed for our nation's entire history can be changed by executive order is nuts. Well, Crystal ignores the fact that the 14th Amendment dates to 1868, not 1776. So it's not even nearly the nation's whole history, but eh, it's just, you know, an oversight. But the clause can be and has been clarified by statute, something Section 5 of the 14th Amendment specifically makes allowances for. Harvard constitutional law professor Lawrence Tribe added his thoughts. If the 14th Amendment's guarantee of birthright citizenship can be wiped out with a stroke of Trump's pen, the whole U.S. Constitution could be erased that way. There's no limit to that dictatorial claim over all of our rights. Now, Lawrence Tribe gets up in the... Was that a Hitler bell? Yeah, you know, people are always accusing Trump of being Hitler. No, you can't ring the Hitler bell for something that... uh, Oblique a you reference? said dictatorial, but yeah. that, that was just a reference no. to in general. No, Michael. All right, all right. It's an abuse of the bell. 100%. Lindsey Graham weighed in on the other side and says he plans to introduce legislation along the, song, uh, the same lines. So DeVore writes, as a former lawmaker, I'm more interested in the intent of the drafters of the 14th Amendment. 
What did they say about it when they introduced it in Congress? First of all, you have to understand the 14th Amendment was forwarded for ratification after the 13th, which ended slavery at the conclusion of the Civil War. But because of the infamous Dred Scott ruling, recently freed slaves were not necessarily citizens. So the court had to had to essentially cut the, the nards off of the Dred Scott ruling, which was an abomination. So the 14th uh, Amendment, Section 1, begins, All persons born or naturalized in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. Senator Jacob Howard was the author of the 14th Amendment's Citizenship Clause, the guy who wrote the damn thing. On the floor of the U.S. Senate in 1866, Senator Howard clarified the meaning of the Citizenship Clause, and I quote the guy who wrote it. What does he know? This will not, of course, include persons born in the United States who are foreigners, aliens, who belong to the families of ambassadors or foreign ministers accredited to the government of the United States, but will include every other class of persons. Clearly, the clause's phrase, subject to the jurisdiction thereof, means something. You can't just ignore it because it's inconvenient. Specifically, this will not, of course, said the guy who wrote it, include persons born in the United States who are foreigners, aliens, or belong to the foreign, uh, you know, families of ambassadors. In the case of Kim Wong Ark, cited by Bill Crystal and often used by defenders of the broad interpretation of the 14th Citizenship Clause, it was decided 30 years after the 14th Amendment was ratified. And in it, the majority held that Wong Kim Ark's parents were lawful permanent residents who were domiciled in the U.S. at the time of his birth. They were lawful permanent residents. And that, they argued, was the reason he could come back in spite of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is a whole nother can of worms to discuss. It essentially said Chinese laborers can't come into the U.S. We got enough of you. Um, not not one of the greatest chapters in our nation's history, but study the the uh, history of it. It's really complicated and 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 ugly in, in in places. But anyway, again, that's a tangent that we could take hours over. But it found that they were not in the nation illegally. They were not here on a temporary basis. And even though they were Chinese citizens, they were permanent residents and clearly under the jurisdiction of the United States. One more point in Trump's favor. At the time of the 14th Amendment, most Native Americans born on reservations were not citizens, were not granted citizenship because they owed allegiance to their tribes. And they were seen as, well, not citizens. They were citizens of their tribes. Individual tribal members could apply for citizenship, but they had to. Or they were considered citizens if they were taxed and lived off a reservation Congress had to pass the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, signed into law by President Coolidge, that the entire Native population became citizens. 92% of Native Americans were not citizens at that time. So the mere fact of their birth on American soil did not make them citizens because they were not under the jurisdiction of the United States. They had to pass the law in 1924. And 92% of all Native Americans then became citizens. The fact that a statute was needed to confer citizenship on a vast class of people born within our borders 26 years after the Wong Kim Ark decision 
throws doubt on the argument that the 14th grants automatic citizenship to everyone born on U.S. soil. That phrase about under the jurisdiction of will be the pivotal phrase as we move forward looking at this uh, decision. Yeah, but it's and not yes, like- it's astonishing that the U.S. Supreme Court has never directly ruled on this. But it's not like we have the words or the interpretation of the guy who actually wrote. Oh wait, no, you you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I read I, that. Apparently, I slurred my speech there. And the, mm-hmm. yeah, we actually the guy who wrote it said this clearly does not include people who are in the country illegally temporarily. Well, what if I counter with he's a jerk face? Well said. Well said. I'm telling you, the conventional wisdom on this is wrong. We'll see how it unfolds. Who knows? I just think it's a great, interesting constitutional... How how have we gotten this old as a country and we haven't figured this out in the Supreme Court? What are you doing over there? What are you? You in the robe, I'm asking you. What are you doing? So if you're gifted with the fourth hour of the show, we have a lot more good stuff. Otherwise, grab the the podcast later. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show.